1: Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Our program is sponsored by great businesses like the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, and also Jeff Staples Real Estate. By the way, if you know someone who would be a good fit, someone who uh, you would like me to evangelize for, well, point me in the right direction. I'd be more than happy to uh, get their word out to a dedicated audience of listeners and wrong thinkers who are are here to uh, get a little glimpse each day of what life is like outside of the echo chamber. There is no requirement that you have to agree with everything I say. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to agree with me. How's that for fun? All I ask is that we each try to think as clearly and independently. That's the kind of information I try to share with you. In fact, there's something I wanted to share with you that uh, I saw yesterday on Facebook that just it has lingered in my mind because it is such a profound observation and it makes me think about how I go about doing what I do here on this program. This is, the, this is the quote. This is from T.K. Coleman, one of the superstars from the Foundation for Economic Education. And he says, so many people hold themselves back because they think, well, I'm not unique enough. And there are already a bunch of artists, writers, thinkers, and creators out there. But, he says, what if it wasn't about being the best? What if it was about serving those who will only receive it from you? That hit me like a ton of bricks. And look, I'll I'll confess, you know, anybody who gets behind a microphone or gets in front of a camera, uh, always at some level there's the goal of, look, I want the most viewers, the most listeners. I I want to build the biggest audience possible. But this kind of puts a little different perspective on it. And this is one of those cases where I think I think I'm beginning to understand that it's it's actually the quality of that audience. Let me put this another way: the quality of the connection you and I have over quantity. I would rather have a, an audience made up of a small audience made up of people who really actually care about the material being presented, or at least are are doing their honest best to seek out information that that betters their understanding of the world than a massive audience of people who are just there so that I can speak soft things into their ears and, you know, hit them with platitudes and otherwise, you know, stroke their egos. I hope that makes sense. And I hope you understand that uh, I do not take you for granted the fact that you would spend some of your valuable time with me, whether it's on a daily basis or, you know, you just check in every now and then to see if I'm as crazy as you thought I was. I appreciate you being a part of my audience. There are so many voices out there. There are so many ways and, and, and places where you can get your information. It is really a privilege to be one of the people who can help provide some further light and hopefully some knowledge on what's happening in the world. Thank you for letting me do that. All right. Now, where to begin? You heard me talk about uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. Last week, in fact, I wanted to share something with you Jeffrey Tucker had posted this on Facebook uh, this was yesterday and it's uh, the Great Barrington declaration these are just some of the statistics signed by nineteen thousand one hundred three medical practitioners signed by seven thousand nine hundred seventy two medical and public health scientists also signed by three hundred twelve thousand six hundred ten members of the general public. By the way, I'm one of them, and I would encourage you, if after reading it you see something there that uh, you say, yep, yeah, I think these guys are right, I think we need to be doing focused protection of the most vulnerable and let everybody else get back out there and resume life, kind of like Sweden is doing, in that uh, we, we build herd immunity quicker by allowing the not-so-vulnerable to go out there, be exposed to the virus, we can't hide from it, indefinitely. The chances are every one of us is going to get it at some point, but it's clearly not the death sentence that we've been told it was. And so this great Barrington Declaration, which featured, uh, what was it? At least three of the top epidemiologists in the world, and I'm not saying the only ones who have the answer, but who at least have some very solid recommendations that there's a better way than locking everything down and and basically forcing people and, and countries into poverty, as well as losing essential freedoms. And it's been fascinating to see the response from the lockdowners. Whew, man, to, to say that they are in damage control mode doesn't even begin to cover it. I mean, the lockdowners have been attempting to smear, well, you know, of course, some of these people who have signed this great Barrington Declaration, why they've been on programs that have hosted anti-Semites or white supremacists before. (laughs) Yes. Oh, the old guilt by association thing. Therefore, nothing they say can be trusted. But that's not as alarming as uh, the lockdowners who attempted to hoax and crash the website. In other words, they would sign up under fake names or they would give fake credentials and then say, see, this proves that none of this can be trusted. No, all it proves is that you're willing to commit fraud in order to try to prove your point. And I guess uh, from what I understand, the the people who are administering the Great Barrington uh, Declaration website now are going through and verifying each name of the people who sign up. Now, there's tens of thousands of those names coming in, you know, at any given time. So you can imagine that's pretty time-consuming. But let's not lose sight of what the real goal is here. The idea isn't that, uh, well, they made this great Barrington Declaration in order to um, overthrow the official narrative and to say you can only believe this. All it was offered as is an alternative Another way of approaching this that doesn't result in the personal and economic devastation that the lockdowns have caused so far. And these are serious people. These are actual, you know, public health specialists, actual, you know, medical specialists in epidemiology and virology and other things. None of them are claiming to be omniscient. None of them claim to have all of the answers. All they're doing is having a dialogue that strays from within that 3 by 5 index card, as Tom Woods would say, of approved opinion. And it's got the lockdowners absolutely terrified. I wish I could share all of the links here. I I unfortunately, in putting the show notes together today, didn't have time to go through and give you all the links. If you're on Twitter, there's, there's two people I would strongly recommend that you follow. If you want to get some really good information on this, Jeffrey A. Tucker, who is the, uh, I think he's the um, editor-in-chief for the American Institute for Economic Research. That's a guy who you should definitely follow. Phil Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S, another brilliant economist and historian. And this guy's BS detector is as finely tuned as any that I have seen. And Phil is an absolute knight in shining armor when it comes to debunking the debunkers. I mean, he is just on fire. In fact, I'm looking at a recent tweet that he sent out just a little bit earlier. Um, This was actually in the wee hours of the morning. A sitting member of the U.S. Congress now is calling on his supporters to shut down the Great Barrington Declaration. And Phil says, this is, a particu- this is particularly alarming following several days of lockdown or attempts to hoax and crash the website. It's Representative Sean Caston. I don't know where he is. I think he's Illinois. But, uh, yeah, scared to death. This is a massively dangerous, deadly idea that will lead to millions of dead Americans. We need to shut it down now. Which apparently is uh, Representative Caston's answer to pretty much everything. Look, there are people who are pushed right now to the very limit. We are backed into a corner. I don't like what comes next when we have to put our foot down and say enough. Because it appears there are, are equally motivated people who are intent on keeping us backed into that corner. And I believe they, uh, they will continue to consolidate power and use forces they have done before to try to maintain their control. Why can't we have this dialogue? Why can't there be a broader debate on the best way to approach this? I mean, for crying out loud, look at, look at Governor Gavin Newsom in California. It's, it's getting to the point where it's almost, it's almost comical, the extent that he's willing to go to. And I can't answer for you. I can only answer for me. But there, this has been so politicized that I think we reached the danger zone a long time ago and zoomed right on past it. When we come back, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about why it's so dangerous to blur the line between science and politics. I've got a great piece from Rob Sutton from Spiked Online. Stay with us. We'll cover that coming up in the next segment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Our program is brought to you in part today by Jeff Staples Real Estate. It would, uh, I would take it as a great personal favor if you or someone you know is in the market to sell a home or to buy a home. And and this is, I guess this is mostly true for my listeners in the state of Utah. No matter where you are in that state, Jeff Staples is the guy I want you to talk to. He's with ERA Brokers Consolidated. He has people all over the state. And if you're looking to sell your home for more or buy your home for less, Jeff is the guy with the experience and the drive to make it happen. You can find his contact information by going to my show notes. At the show.com These are the show notes for October 12, 2020. Right at the bottom of the page, you'll see Jeff Staples Real Estate listed under our sponsors. Click on it. There you'll find his phone number and other contact information. Please make good use of it. Okay, so in the last segment we were talking about the Great Barrington Declaration. And oh the powers that be. They are determined. Not so much to provide correct information. That's not the that's not the thing here. They want to smear and discredit and cause doubt that there could be any point of view other than their own. Why would they do such a thing? I think it's because we have tied science to power, and that is becoming a very uh, very dangerous place to stay. In Spiked Online, Rob Sutton has a great article. Now, keep in mind, this is written from across the pond, but I think what he has to say is absolutely on target. His point being that the more scientists breach into politics the more they risk damaging their credibility. He says, For a government administration, communicating scientific advice is deeply challenging. The frantic pace of the 24-hour news cycle and competition from social media mean the bandwidth through which complex ideas must be relayed to the public is very narrow. Also, we have a parliament composed largely of graduates of the humanities and social sciences for whom the quantitative method of physical science or methods of physical science, rather, have always been something of an afterthought. Now, he says, this is not to excuse the government's erratic COVID-19 response, but the incentive structure of our broadcasters is such that cat- catastrophizing 10-second sound bites will gain greater traction than a level-headed exposition of the likelihoods, advantages, and challenges of various competing strategies. Rob Sutton says, it's only reasonable to expect... Some degree of sensationalism on the part of the media when addressing the pandemic. What we should not expect or excuse is when the government scientific advisors and spokespersons, funded by the public purse and bearing considerable social responsibility, provide cynical interpretations of data of questionable validity and drawn from a weak evidence base, all in order to justify further restrictions. Dang, in a nutshell, Does that not describe the problem that we're facing all over the world right now? Politicized scientific advisors. Now, Mr. Sutton says the uh, government's scientific advisors have, in an unprecedented manner, served as a go-between during the pandemic, taking government policy and relaying it to the public through a series of press conferences. The positions of chief medical officer and chief scientific advisor have rarely been required to venture into the fray of public debate, debate rather. But the curious interface of science and policy which now shapes our lives has given these positions an authoritative platform, and the influence they now hold over the minutiae of our public and private lives is unprecedented. He says policy should be based broadly on common sense and an understanding of human incentives. When policy must regulate matters involving human behavior, this is tricky. COVID has thrown an additional element into the mix, which considerably complicates things. An invisible pathogen whose biology, replication cycle, transmission behavior, and susceptibility factors are, in many respects, still unknown. He says we've therefore shifted into realms in which most politicians would best tread carefully, if at all. Science should serve as a guide here, explaining what is required to navigate such perilous terrain. In turn, it is of the highest importance that those scientists act, or scientists involved act with integrity, uphold the ideals of the scientific method, and keep out of politics. Scientists, he said, we must remember are human beings. They do not act with perfect impartiality and are susceptible to the same cognitive and moral failures as the rest of us. This is precisely why the scientific method prizes replicability, openness, and skepticism. He says science should be a meritocracy of people and ideas. But scientists don't exist in a social vacuum, and groupthink can easily take hold. This is why science and politics should be kept separate. But the line between the two has been blurred. The recent press conference at which a graph projecting 50,000 new infections per day by mid-October was presented is a case in point. Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Valence stressed this was not a prediction, and indeed we are nowhere near that level now, but that scary graph was bound to dominate the headlines, and it served the purpose of rolling the pitch for further restrictions to be announced by the government. What we have here, then, are exercises in political communication not scientific communication. Rob Sutton says the leading scientific advocates of lockdown present a carefully curated set of projections to suit a predetermined narrative. Instead of weighing up likelihoods and considering alternative hypotheses, a single catastrophic outcome is waved at us. This merging of science and politics, he says, may well outlast the coronavirus. The existence of a credibility gap between politicians and the public is an accepted and healthy part of a skeptical democratic society. But the formation of a credibility gap between the scientific community and the public would be a disaster for science. This is from Rob Sutton, junior doctor, recent graduate of the University of Oxford Medical School. I tend to agree. By the way, I'm glad he mentioned the word democracy. I want to share with you a quick piece here. This is from my friend Gary Arnell. Last week we reported how Senator Mike Lee was taking a lot of heat over a tweet about how democracy isn't the objective. Peace, liberty, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish, and rank democracy can thwart that. You remember this? We talked, I think, on Friday about it. Gary Arnell writes, During the October eighth, 2020, vice presidential debate between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence Utah Senator Mike Lee, in quarantine after testing positive for COVID-19, posted several tweets that quickly got him in hot water. The most egregious, apparently, was the one in which he said that uh, democracy isn't the objective, the one I just shared with you. Now, within within 24 hours of this tweet... Senator Lee faced a backlash of pitchfork-wielding torch waivers, screeching about how a U.S. senator was undermining the foundations of civilization. And he has example after example of people losing their minds over Senator Lee's tweet. But Gary says the only thing controversial about this tweet is Senator Lee's spelling. He did have a typo in there. Otherwise, anyone nominally familiar with our country's founding and the structure of government laid out in the U.S. Constitution would immediately recognize that rank democracy clearly, and Lee confirmed, is referring to the founders' concern over the dual nature of humankind, reason versus the impulse of passion. Now, he backs this up with a quote from James Madison from Federalist No. 10, who said, Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. Now, Gary says our constitutional structure seeks to harness man's reason while subduing his passionate and impulsive nature when it comes to lawmaking. This is why we have a bicameral legislature with presidential veto, enumerated powers, the electoral college, etc. Even the Bill of Rights was the majority telling its future self what it couldn't do to minorities. Rank is referring to man's baser nature, the violent passions discussed in Federalist 63. So yeah, there is a bad definition of democracy. Has that ever occurred to you? We're going to come back to this in a few moments because Gary uses this as a wonderful stepping-off point for how we can all make better arguments about whatever it is we're trying to argue. And we can also do better to understand what our opponents are trying to say. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome back to
1: the show. And once again, please take my invitation to uh, check out the show notes at thebrianhide.show.com. There's something else that I would really like to ask of you, and this goes back to uh, what I mentioned earlier on in the show. It's not about, hey, I'm trying to build the biggest audience in the history of uh, or podcasting. Um, No, I want to build the most quality audience because you actually um, are valuing what I'm sharing with you. But there's nothing that helps me do that more than getting feedback from you. And there's a couple ways you can do this. You can, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast, especially if you subscribe on the Anchor FM podcast platform. And there's a link right at the bottom of the show notes. Subscribe to the podcast. You can leave me a voicemail, and I'll be happy to, to respond. Or if you go to my website, just uh, go to thebrianheidshow.com. At the end of each episode of the show notes, you can leave comments there as well. Or you can send me an email. It's, it's, look, there are multiple ways to contact me. I do welcome your feedback. The good, the bad, the ugly. Whatever I can do to do my job better, you know, I need your help to make sure I'm staying on course. So there's your invitation. All right, back to the commentary from Gary Arnell. I love this. He's talking about Mike Lee and and how he is not anti-democratic at least in the sense that people are accusing him when mike lee refers to rank democracy as being you know a, a way to undermine the values that actually make life worth living prosperity and liberty and freedom he's not talking about uh, you know democratic uh, aspects of government he's talking about passion the crowd the the lynch mob taking over for a more reasoned and rational approach to government. Now, obviously, Gary says this was the meaning of democracy, the, the, the baser nature of man, the violent passions that Madison discusses in Federalist 63. That's what Senator Lee had in mind. Now, he says, are there other uses of the word? Yes. Sometimes we use democracy in a desirable sense, like a shorthand when saying federal constitutional republic feels too wordy. Absolutely. But he says that brings him to his main point. This is a classic case of making a man an offender for a word. Yeah, Isaiah. (laughs) Democracy, like many words, has multiple meanings. And Gary Arnell says Lee is using one word in one way, and the mob is attacking him using a different meaning of that word. Put in modern terms, Lee's opponents are attacking a strongman. The fallacy when we give the impression of countering an argument while the actual idea is not properly addressed or refuted. In addition to being intellectually dishonest, it creates an enormous amount of noise. Citizens already inundated with information have to wade through stacks of straw to get at needles of truth. Now, last week, Senator Lee was trending at number four on Twitter as the mob ravaged his comments. That's a lot of straw men. That's a lot of fake news. And Gary says our discourse would get so much farther if we would instead use a steel man approach when we represent our opponent as they would represent themselves. Not presenting and attacking a caricature. A few years ago, he has a link uh, from an article here from uh, The Atlantic. He says The Atlantic wrote powerfully about steel manning as the highest form of disagreement. Perhaps Lee should be more clear in his tweeting and spelling, but he says we can be more generous, gracious, and accurate in our critiques, addressing what the speaker meant, not one of the many possible misrepresentations of it. Now, I agree with what Gary is saying here wholeheartedly, and yet I find myself, you know, just if I can be perfectly honest not wanting to do what he's recommending. Why? Because that's hard work. How easy is it to present what your opponent is saying in the clearest and most accurate light of what they would see themselves as presenting? It's pretty tough, isn't it? It makes their argument stronger. It makes it less easy to swat down like a pinata. But if you're serious about really knowing what your, speaker, what the, uh, your opponent says and, and what the speaker is trying to say... That's the kind of benefit of the doubt you've got to give them. Why is it so hard? I think I have an answer, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think it's just pride. I think that's all it is. We're, you know, nobody wants to be wrong. But if we can set aside that pride, even if it's just giving ourselves the luxury of saying, look, I could be wrong. That's how you can start having some productive discussions as opposed to shouting matches and then casting aspersions, name calling, most uh, creative insults and, you know, the whole scorched earth mentality that goes into so much of online argumentation, particularly. Plus, it will make you a better, I'll say a better debater, although maybe debate isn't really, you know, your goal it'll make you a better communicator. And let's say you're hashing out an, art, an article or an argument with somebody and you want to present your case. If you know their case and if you can state their case in a way that they're like, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's not you saying, okay, then you've won. But it is you showing good faith that I'm willing to hear you and, and try to portray you as honestly as possible in what you're saying, as opposed to that distorted straw man that I'm now going to tear apart and then proclaim myself the victor. This is solid advice, and I expect nothing less from Gary. He's a great guy. So, anyway, I have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself and understand that uh, we can make better arguments by better understanding our opponent's point of view. It doesn't mean you accept that point of view. It just means you're willing to step over from a little different vantage point and take a look at it and see if maybe you can understand where they're coming from. All right. Hey, moving on. Found a terrific article from the Foundation for Economic Education this weekend, and, and it really hit me because it's a woman named Lydia Kapp explaining what happened when she followed her husband down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics. Now, I know a lot of people don't really have that interest. Oh, I don't want to study economics. That sounds boring, man. Crunching numbers and theories. You know, how, how can this be interesting? And I once felt that way myself. I've since learned that, uh, really, if you're serious about understanding the world at a deeper level than just political bumper sticker slogans, you have to learn about economics. And if you're going to learn about economics, Austrian economics, I believe, gives you the best, most honest depiction of what free market economics are about. But I want you to hear Lydia Cap's story. She says, long before reusable grocery bags came into social fashion, my great aunt a, bought a canvas bag with the words chronic student printed on it in bold red letters. And she used that bag for her books when she went back to school in her 40s for a degree in accounting at California State University, Northridge. She says, now I use that uh, and reuse that bag for grass-fed beef and kettle-cooked potato chips. And every time I do, she says, I think of the very particular, very stubborn, smart-as-hell woman who gifted it to me. She knew that I understood the importance of learning and that I wouldn't ever stop. But she says, let's be real, though. Learning is hard. Learning is being a beginner over and over and over again. Learning is being genuinely vulnerable to strong logic and sound reasoning that might just bowl over everything you've ever known and believed. And so Lydia Kapp says when her husband started going down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics, a school of thought which considers large-scale production, distribution, and consumption of goods as directly related to small-scale human-individual-human interaction... She says, I did my best to encourage him, while simultaneously expressing that economics just wasn't for me. After all, she says, I'm an actor and a screenwriter. What could the Austrian school have to offer me? Slowly but surely, though, phrases like demonstrated preference, incentivized, and negative rights begin to infiltrate my understanding of the world. As a side note, she says, I highly recommend marrying a smart, chronic student. The quality of conversation is not only incredibly diverting, but also very instructive. She says, the more I pitted my ideas of what surely must be true against his ideas of what surely must be true, the more my ideas waned in strength. She says, I realized that what I believed wasn't so much untrue as it was incomplete. I had looked at the first order of consequences of ideas and policies, whereas my husband, thanks to his self-styled studying of the Austrian school, was beginning to look at second, third, and fourth order consequences that I had stopped short of considering but which very much impacted the world around me, regardless. She says, cue to five years later, and I'm finally reading Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, and she says, you know what? Economics absolutely is for me. The artist, the storyteller, because economics is, in fact, an art. We're going to come back to this in a few moments. I really hope this is kindling a little flame of curiosity in your heart right now. And if you're going to start somewhere, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson is a marvelous place to start to get your mind around what
0: economics is. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the
1: show. All right, I'm doing my best to convince you that, hey, it's not only fun and productive, but it's actually kind of cool to study economics. That's a tough sell. I not only say this because when someone tried to convince me of that, to, oh, I don't know, 15 years ago or thereabouts, I was resistant. But I'm sharing with you this article from Lydia Cap, who is an actor and screenwriter, And she's talking about how things changed for her. What happened when she followed her husband down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics? And she says, it started, you know, pretty mild. Well, what could it possibly offer me, you know, someone who's in the fine arts, you know? How could I possibly benefit from it? But thanks to conversations she had with her husband, who apparently is a lifelong learner, a chronic student, as she puts it, she says, I have really come to understand Economics absolutely is for me, even, even though she's an artist and a storyteller, because she says economics is in fact an art. Now, she highly recommends Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, and she has a quote from him. Hazlitt observes the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups, end quote. By the way, he's saying what Frederick Bastiat said in his incredible essay, The Law, way back in the uh, early 18, well, mid-1800s. You might think there might be some truth there. Maybe it's worth checking out. In this case, Lydia Cap says, Tracing all of the potential effects of any policy or act, both in the short term and in the long term, requires something with which every artist is richly acquainted, imagination. What in fact is the imagination if not thinking ahead, envisioning in the mind that which has not ever been and might never be or could be or should be or would be or will be? She says Hazlitt uses a multitude of examples to illustrate how nigh on every shortcoming in political and economic policy comes from someone somewhere being short-sighted. Even good intentions can have unseen negative effects. Federal tax dollars, for example, may pay for the building of a beautiful, genuinely useful bridge. But what is unseen, what one must use the imagination to contend with, is everything not built and not paid for because of the taxation and therefore removal of said dollars, homes, movies, sweaters, tickets, health care, food, bikes, dance classes, tutoring, television, scholarships, and more. So the bridge may be visible and easy to admire. The losses to the individuals and the industries that would grow through their patronage are not. And she, she says a truly good economist, if she's to be of any genuine use to society and not accidentally steer it towards destruction by the death of a thousand cuts, must see beyond the bridge. She must train her imagination so that she can also see every individual and every industry which suffers as a result of this government taxation which forcibly brought the bridge into existence and include them in her big picture. Likewise, she says, the actor trains herself to see and even embody that which is invisible, a life she never lived, loves she never had, injuries she never endured, hopes she never carried, pains she never bore. If an actor exclaims, my character wouldn't do that, in reference to something her character clearly does in the script, but which she herself simply doesn't like, or can't seem to make truthful in her performance, her distress doesn't excuse her from her responsibility to embody what is written. Not even bad writing, if in fact she's right, and her character wouldn't do that, excuses her for it's still explicitly her job as the actor to imagine herself into the entirety of the script, not cherry-pick the parts that resonate with her and blame the writer for the rest. She asks, what faith, then, should we put in economists who refuse to imagine themselves into the entire script of an act or policy, the good and the bad? The entire script includes the consequences for all groups, not just one. The entire script includes long-term effects, not just immediate. I love the analogy here. A bad actor ruins a play. A bad economist ruins an economy. We the people should be choosy with both. And she says, now I understand why all those years ago I just politely nodded while my husband spoke of free markets and Murray Rothbard, talking about economics with someone who's never before considered the unfathomably complex and invisible consequences of economic policies on the lives of hundreds of millions of people is like talking about acting with someone who's never before considered what it might be like to actually feel the feelings of an unreal person coursing palpably through your physical body. She says the conversation is foreign. The terms are new. The frames of reference we've soaked in over the years and used to navigate the world have to be shaken and stirred and swallowed like martinis so we can relax a little bit and listen to what is essentially a new language without becoming defensive. She says we must be willing to learn. We must be willing to be beginners. We must be willing to be vulnerable to logic and sound reasoning, even when it bowls over our preconceived notions of how the world works. We must become and we must remain chronic students. She says I'm an artist. I'm learning to be an economist, and you can too. And by the way, if you, if you check this Lydia Capps article on the Foundation for Economics Education, there is a link from fee.org where you can actually download a PDF of Economics in One Lesson for free. Won't cost you a dime. The only thing it's going to cost you is that ever-precious commodity of time and the willingness to study it and understand it. I hope you'll take advantage of it. In my experience, people who study economics are far better informed and far less susceptible to all the partisan bickering just because they they have a way of thinking outside the box. I I would encourage you, become one of those people. It's an ongoing process, okay? It's not like you're going to say, okay, I've arrived after a couple of weeks. But it's a process that's definitely worth undergoing. Okay, I'm going to invite you to step out of the comfort zone with me for a moment here, just for the final few moments of this segment. I want to talk about something that is going to send some people over the edge, but I feel like I need to do it. Because uh, a lot of us are wondering what's going to happen come November 3rd. I actually met up with a really good friend. I haven't seen him in probably close to 30 years. And I ran into him um, yesterday. He stopped as he was passing through town. He and his wife and I sat down and just visited. And the first question, what do you think's going to happen? Come the election. It's on a lot of people's minds. And it's a question most of us are kind of simultaneously asking as well as dreading. So I'm going to link to an article from Reason Magazine. Why can't they both lose? This is from Catherine Mag- Mangu Ward. And <laughs> what? You're saying Trump and Biden should both lose? I know. There's a lot of fear that's driving what's going on right now, and, and that's why people can't imagine one or the other not winning. But in this case, Catherine Mangu Ward, I think, has, has something worth thinking about. She starts with, look, they say if you don't vote, you can't complain, but she says they're wrong. Complaining is prior to voting. It's deeper and more powerful than voting. It is the original act of politics. Before there was democracy, there was sitting around the campfire complaining about the way the headman allocated the shares of mastodon meat. Belly-aching about the boss is more than a political right, she says. It is a human right. And so in Reason's 2020 election issue, she says, we are here to complain. And this is the case she's trying to make. The candidates from both major parties are subpar. They display troubling authoritarian tendencies. Their records in office, one long, one short, are underwhelming and frequently self-contradictory. Their actions consistently fail to match their rhetoric. If they agree on one thing, it's that they have the right, and perhaps the obligation, to tell you what to do in the bedroom and in the boardroom, in the streets and in the sheets. If they agree on one thing, it is the necessity of spending ever-large sums of taxed and borrowed money in pursuit of ever vaguer goals. They helm parties that are similarly compromised and hypocritical. Even if by some miracle you actually fully agreed with a set of principles and plans as articulated by one of the candidates in a particular campaign speech or policy paper, she says you couldn't have a shred of confidence, at least reasonably, that those principles would be carried through into consistent governance. And so she asks a question, why do you settle for that? Why do you have to hold your nose and go out of your way to merely vote for the candidate you hate the least? If you were replacing your toilet, for instance, would you not be absolutely furious if your plumber told you, well, despite the existence of numerous makes and models, due to the way the toilet seat selection system works, you're going to have to choose between one that leaks and another that has a broken seat. Yeah, I don't think any of us would be happy with that. She says the more fundamental something is, the angrier and more vocal you should be at being asked to choose between bad options. You don't have a moral obligation to talk yourself into the idea that a damp bathroom floor is okay, no matter what people are saying in your social feeds or on your family phone calls. Check it out. It's in the show notes. I promise it will challenge you.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.